So basically what happens is that we are at a crossroads and the decisions that governments take now will have huge impacts in the clean energy transition. There's a risk that governments will return to austerity and they will cut back on programs related to environment and energy. And we've already seen that the first wave of government actions has aimed to protect existing energy sources and energy technologies. The big risk I see is that we emerge from this pandemic situation, we emerge from all these stimulus funds, and we haven't seized that opportunity. There's a good potential we won't see it again for several decades, the amount of money that's being invested. So it's really, really critical we seize it now. This is the Down to Earth podcast. This podcast is about extraordinary ideas for a better world. My name is Paulina Rezic, and I'm the Senior Communications Officer at ISD Energy and the Global Subsidies Initiative. I think also people are acutely aware that we need to avoid an even worse crisis coming up behind the COVID crisis, and that's the climate crisis. This episode is about one of the biggest challenges of our times, recovering from the pandemic in a way that will keep us on track to meet climate goals. We must figure out how to get out of this crisis strategically while building a resilient and fossil-free economy for future generations. Are we on the right track to achieve this? What will it take to align the COVID-19 recovery with climate goals and why this is the only way? to build back better. In early 2020, COVID-19 turned the world upside down. At that time, nothing was certain. The global crisis impacted almost all areas of our lives, first and foremost, our health, but also the way we work, commute, and consume energy. For the energy sector, it meant enormous stimulus packages that would significantly define our energy system for decades to come. Our future will be massively impacted by the investments we see today. We've already seen that the first wave of government actions has aimed to protect existing energy sources and energy technologies, and most of those are fossil energy. So a lot of government financial support and a lot of government stimulus initially went to reducing damage done, right? So we actually see a whole lot of money going to bailouts as well. And that includes bailouts that are linked to fossil energy. There's no place for fossil fuel subsidies generally in a modern economy in an age in which climate change is one of the biggest problems facing society. I remember this moment when I opened a link from one of our leading experts with the first results from the Energy Policy Tracker, a project that has been tracking funds for energy and recovery packages around the world since July 2020. The amount of money governments were pledging to fossil fuels was shocking. In terms of government stimulus up until May 2021, we see that at least $330 billion has gone to fossil energy, most of which was spent in G20 countries. That's Tom Murenhound, a professor of global energy policy at Columbia University and a senior associate at ISD. 
Tom was one of these experts who quickly realized that the world needs to know how the COVID-19 recovery is impacting the energy sector and that the only way to do this is to get all researchers from different organizations around the world together and start tracking these announcements and categorizing them from a climate and energy transition perspective. You cannot deny that our world economy is addicted to fossil fuels. Detoxing from that is going to be a lengthy process. So initially, there were very few choices but bailing out some of these fossil fuel users, airlines especially. So that's what we've seen in the beginning, just to make sure that those industries could survive, that they basically, you know, that they could keep jobs mainly jobs. So that's, I think, why we've seen that in the beginning, sort of an an immediate reaction to make sure that the damage is not larger than it already is. The question is, where do you want to go from here? With time, we saw the recovery getting greener as new clean policies changed the balance. But still, G20 governments have pledged only 35% of their recovery support to clean energy, while at the same time they have committed 45% of recovery funds to fossil fuels. We see a lot of goodwill. I really believe that there is a lot of goodwill in terms of net zero targets, faraway goals and so forth. But that needs to be really matched up now by stimulus decisions today. And there we see that it's just not quick enough, it's, it's not uh, solid enough. Compared to pre-industrial times, we are now at 1.1 degrees Celsius global warming. The Paris Accord sets the target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. If we don't change anything, we will be on track for two degrees warming, not 1.5, by 2060. That's in four decades. For an energy system perspective, this is a very, very short time period. So the investments need to be much more radical. That means more going into what we're already seeing and what is positive. Renewables, clean energy, electric mobility and so forth. So the most challenging question today is how to raise money for the economic recovery. Many governments are asking themselves this. And this is where the green recovery thinking should actually start. Lourdes Sanchez is an expert on energy transitions who leads the ISD Fossil Free Recovery Project. She made me realize that the concept of a fossil-free recovery is not only about short-term government actions in response to COVID-19. It's a system of fiscal tools and strategic solutions that goes much deeper than recovery spending. First and foremost, we need to stop putting recovery money into fossil fuel production, unless it is to transition to cleaner and more sustainable alternatives. But this is not the only thing. There are many other steps on the way that are actually crucial to support the whole process, because the policies that generate revenue can have a significant impact on on climate action. So in this sense, if we think this way, a very green and very strategic way for, for governments to raise revenue is the reform of subsidies to fossil fuels and green taxation. So both measures can raise revenue, public revenue, of the order of hundreds of billions of US dollars every year. And that can be used to to support the COVID-19 recovery and also the clean energy transition. Then we face another question, which is uh, how should we spend this strategically so that it is aligned with climate action? So one of the key things that governments can do is to redirect the savings from subsidy reform into clean energy. 
which includes not only renewable energy, but also energy efficiency, the decarbonization of private and public transport, access to energy, and also creating the electricity systems of the future. So this should be followed by, by policies that actually incentivize private investments also in clean electricity. And finally, the last thing that governments should, should consider and actually that brings back to the, to the main goal is that uh, in whatever we do, we need to make sure that people are put first and that we maximize the positive employment and social gains. What we need are fiscal mechanisms to raise money, such as subsidy reform and green taxation, and concrete plans to support the clean energy transition while recovering from the COVID crisis. Stay with us to hear more about these measures and learn about what a fossil fuel recovery could look like in practice. Okay, so fossil fuel subsidy reform and taxation are two great ways for governments to raise revenue for the COVID crisis. That's for two reasons. Firstly, because their fossil fuel taxation is a very broad-based way of raising funding and it tends to be progressive. It tends to tax the rich more than the poor. And then the revenues that are raised can be used to fund social programs such as welfare payments, uh, economic stimulus, job creation programs and things like that. That's Tara Lan and I is the expert on green taxation. At the same time, there's a price signal that's sent to consumers by raising fossil fuel prices. It sends a signal to shift away from fossil fuels as an energy source uh, and that has two major benefits. Firstly, it directs consumers towards cleaner energy sources. And secondly, by raising those prices, it essentially prices externalities. So all the negative effects of fossil fuels, like um, the effects on air pollution, the effects on climate change, on even traffic congestion and traffic accidents are all correlated with fuel prices. By pricing that, that energy at a higher rate, it tends to shift consumers away from that and reduces those externalities, uh, which also saves governments money. There are two key tools that can help governments raise necessary funds while staying true to the Paris Agreement. And these are fossil fuel subsidy reform and green taxation. But exactly how much money are we talking about and how do these tools work in practice? Joachim Roth, our expert on subsidy reform and taxation, has the numbers. A lot of money can be raised. For example, in 2019, governments spent at least 404 billion US dollars on subsidies to consumption of fossil fuels alone. And if we include all government support for fossil fuel production and consumption, uh, which is also support for state-owned enterprises and public finance, in addition to subsidies, that number doubles, reaching at least 802 billion. And many support measures are not even quantified. Of course, it would be really difficult to reform all these subsidies at once, but these numbers give an idea of the scale of annual support and the potential savings. And in terms of taxing fossil fuels, we calculated that a tax of 12.5 cents per liter on gasoline and diesel could raise over 1 billion USD per day, equal to around 400 billion USD per year. So again, a tremendous amount that could be put to a lot of productive uses. Some countries have already started implementing these solutions. 
India has managed to raise more than $19 billion by increasing tax on gasoline and diesel. So, for example, as part of the COVID response, India and Costa Rica are two interesting countries. So in India, for example, they raised the excise duty on gasoline and diesel, and that raised a lot of revenue. It was a means of funding the COVID-19 response. And Costa Rica, they had a different mechanism, but what they put in place was a fuel price floor so for, uh, for gasoline so that when the fuel prices went really down um, during the pandemic, uh, they basically ensure that fuel prices domestically would not go below a certain level. So they, they could raise revenue that way, and they used re that revenue to um, protect certain workers that, that were at risk of losing their jobs. These measures, if applied strategically, can support societies regardless of their level of development. But there are two crucial things to keep in mind. One is revenue, and the other is local context. Tara Lan explains. Yeah, so it seems counterintuitive that you would raise taxes or energy prices at all, whether through subsidy reform or through taxation during an economic crisis. But it all depends on how you spend those revenues. So it's not just about taking money out of people's pockets. It's also about what the government then does with that revenue. And we know from a lot of research over you know, many years that low energy prices are a really bad way to help people. The benefits go mostly to the rich and it just creates a lot of problems in terms of uh, pollution and all the costs that come with that pollution, like you know the externalities, as I was mentioning before, of, of climate change and air pollution. Um, so that's a really bad way to help people by reducing fossil fuel prices. So the contrary, the, the, the opposite side of it is you raise fossil fuel prices you use that revenue for targeted support to help the poor, to deliver job creation programs, to deliver all the things we need at the moment for COVID response and recovery. Um, it's a much better way to help people than just cheap energy prices. Some people think that fossil fuel subsidy reform and taxation is only for the governments that can afford it. It's a luxury. That's not the case at all. Whether you're rich or a poor country, the principles are the same, but it has to be done very sensitively to those countries' circumstances. So, for example, you wouldn't tax LPG in a country where that's a clean cooking fuel and people will switch back to using biomass if you increase the price. At the same time, you might use different mechanisms of providing assistance to the poor, uh, depending on the taxation system um, or tax infrastructure available in that country. So we have to be very careful about how we apply these principles. Subsidy reform and green taxation, if applied carefully and strategically, could help us tackle the crisis by providing much-needed revenue while limiting fossil fuel energy consumption and therefore greenhouse gas emissions. Once the governments have successfully brought in the revenue, how can they make the most of it? so we can build back better. What we do need to do is they need to back transformative investment in clean energy. That's Richard Bridal, a senior policy advisor at ISD and our key expert on clean energy. Richard has been working for 15 years on issues related to renewable energy. He started his career working on a wind farm project and eventually became an expert on policies supporting clean energy transitions. 
Governments need to be bold and consistent. They need to establish the direction of travel and, and the goals that they're trying to achieve. And they need to ensure that all of their tax and subsidy policies are consistent with that. So it's very clear that over the next decade, we need to have a really fundamental transition of our energy sector. And that means that every tax policy and every subsidy policy has to be consistent with that goal. So it makes a very great deal of sense to reform fossil fuel subsidies and increase taxes on fossil fuels in many cases, and then reallocate a portion of those savings to pay for the transition to clean energy and the rest of the funds can be used for other purposes, for social projects, to increase the welfare system and other governmental priorities. But that message that subsidies should be swapped from fossil fuels to clean energy is really fundamental and should be at the heart of recovery policy. If what we advocate was delivered, so if um, fossil fuel subsidies were reformed and reallocated to fund the transition, we'd see a dramatic increase in the deployment of renewable energy, um, but we'd also see a fundamental change in the economy. We'd see more people employed in reducing energy, in deploying clean energy. And once this transition has happened, we don't have to worry about it again. We don't have to worry about the climate because our economies will become climate compatible. When we talk about being ready for net zero, this could be an opportunity in which our economies and our, and our homes and our transport and the electricity we use are all compatible with this target that we talk about in 2050 of net zero. And, and that would be a much more secure place to be. We don't have to kind of worry that we're, we're trying to get the last decade out of fossil fuels and then we'll change right at the last minute. We can take a step now and, and get ahead of the curve and that will benefit us all. There is no doubt that governments that invest in the energy transition today will be ahead of the curve tomorrow. But the power of clean energy investments also lies in the immediate benefits that these projects can provide to support the recovery. One of the advantages that renewable energy has in, in the short term, just in, in terms of economics, is that renewable energy projects tend to have very short lead time. So it takes decades to build a nuclear power station, for example, but renewable energy projects can be delivered in months in some cases. So wind farms and solar plants are very quick to build. So if you want to create jobs now and create economic activity in the supply chain now, then uh, renewable projects are really are really well suited to doing that. So just, just in terms of creating recovery now and creating jobs now, renewable energy has a lot going for it. Also, energy efficiency has the potential to create very many jobs. We need a fundamental redesign and retooling of our building sector. So that means insulation, and it also means a kind of conversion from fossil fueled heating systems to electrified heating systems like heat pumps. All of this could be done now with, it, with relatively short lead times and would put very large numbers of people back to work in deploying those technologies. And if we did that, that would reduce energy costs for homeowners and consumers and, and tenants. And it would also reduce our emissions, which is important for the climate crisis. Our governments have the power to transform the energy system by reallocating public funds from fossil fuels to clean energy. But that's not all they can do. 
they can also design policies that impact private investments. Lourdes centers on government incentives that can bring private sector on board. So the electricity sector, especially renewables, are going to need huge amounts of investments. And it is expected already that the majority of it will come from the private sector. And basically because there is appetite for that. So in this case, governments still have a very important role to play, mostly by designing policies and mechanisms that incentivize this private investment. So we, we have to acknowledge that the cost of renewables has decreased dramatically in the past few years. But it's also true that uh, renewables still can face some hurdles in some, in some conditions. So what governments here can do is, in addition to, to giving subsidies to renewable energy, is also design mechanisms like the reverse auctions that help achieve the, the cheapest prices at the same time that they allow to, to uh, discover what is this cheapest price. Governments can also give mandates to the state on enterprises so that they invest more in renewables. And also they can use their public finance institutions to help reduce the risk of investing in renewables so that then private money, private investors can come in. It's amazing how much we could gain through smart policy changes and fiscal solutions that are designed by experts in economics and energy transitions. But these solutions wouldn't help us build back better if they didn't have one more element incorporated into their design. It's making sure that no one is left behind. This is why all policy ideas, even those that have strong environmental and economic gains, need to be double-checked in terms of their social impacts. And this is where just transition experts come into play. Stay with us to hear more about just transitions from Philip Gass. A government could do a green transition, but for a transition to be just, it has to have the involvement of, of workers and employers. This is Philip Gass, IASD lead on Just Transitions. He's the one who adds a human perspective to high-level economic concepts, looking at individuals, their lives, jobs, families, asking who will be affected, who needs support, and what can be done to make sure none of these people are left behind. Well, what it means is really we have to ensure that those who are going to be most impacted by the transition have an opportunity to be a part of the process to ensure that they're not facing undue pressure and that any impacts that are going to be faced by them are mitigated to the extent possible and that we find solutions. And so that might mean for workers in the fossil fuel sector that there are opportunities to transition out of the sector into maybe clean energy jobs within the sector or into other sectors like tourism or agriculture or manufacturing of products and services that are consistent with a green economy. For somebody who is in a low-income household, it's about ensuring that energy prices aren't increased dramatically that would impact them negatively without measures put in place to support those that are most vulnerable. For somebody who's maybe a shop owner in a town where a large amount of the workers and, and their customers are fossil fuel employees. It's about ensuring that they're still going to have a market and that there are still going to be people who are going to be customers of that business to the extent possible. I think that when governments are deciding on these recovery packages, they need to listen to people outside of government. And I think that 
what would have been great would have been if these recovery packages were developed in a manner consistent with Just Transition, where workers and employers had a voice into how the money is directed. I think in some cases, uh, workers have had a voice. In a lot of cases, industry has had a voice into how that money is dedicated. I don't think there's been a huge effort in terms of stakeholder engagement. Well, the response would be to me, well, look, it's urgent. We have to do this right now. But I don't think you should say, well, just because we have to do it fast doesn't mean we shouldn't do it right. So if there was to be another round of stimulus, it would be great to see it developed in a manner consistent with the guidelines for Just Transition. One thing is certain. In all we do, we need to put people first. Not only those who live on this planet today, but also those who will be here tomorrow. There are ways to ensure that our recovery not only supports us today, but also works for our future and the future of next generations. And yes, it requires strategic approach, expertise, smart policy design. It requires ambition. And we should expect this from our governments. It's their job to make sure we find not only any solution, but the best possible solution to build back better. Thanks for listening to Down to Earth, a podcast from the International Institute for Sustainable Development. IISD is an independent think tank that delivers the knowledge to act. Through research, science, and analysis, the IISD tackles the root causes of some of the greatest challenges facing our planet today. Find out more at www.iisd.org. This episode was created by Paulina Rezich and Charlie Blay. Thanks also to Lourdes Sanchez, Tom Murenhout, Richard Bridal, Tara Lamb, Joaquin Roth, and Philip Gass. Down to Earth is produced by Carmen Clausen.